0: Welcome to the Board of Education, where troublemakers and system breakers gather to discuss how they are dismantling inequity in public education. Calling our meeting to order is Chairman of the Board, Jonathan Santos Silva.
1: That's me. I'm Jonathan Santos Silva. I'm here with Doc Miller. And this is the Board of Ed, man. I, I say it every time as if like, I live in a desert and this is my oasis, but I really look forward <laughs> to being with you and it's exciting to be back recording with you, Doc.
0: I, I am excited, uh, as always, to be with my friend Jonathan Santos Silva, sir. Um, I'm, I'm hoping maybe we'll get to see the kids. Uh, you know, Asa made uh, an <laughs> appearance last episode. Uh, maybe JJ will come in. <laughs> like, who knows? Like, who You knows? never know who's going to stop by the Board of it. It could yeah. be a, a world renowned educator, it could be one of the cutest kids you've ever seen in your life. It, it could be anybody.
1: It could be anybody. Um, but it, today we have a special somebody, and I can't wait to introduce it to her. you all to her. But before I do that, um, it's been a year of, you know, engaging and connecting in unique ways, right? Like we're coming off the tail end of the the first wave of the pandemic. Folks are freaking out. you know, we're coming through the second wave of this delta. Um, but through it all, social media has been there. It's been our friend, connecting us and keeping us, you know, together. Doc, how do people connect with us? How do they stay engaged with us um, if they if they're listening and they want to go deeper?
0: Absolutely. Well, your one non you know your one nonstop shop for all things board of ed would be the BoardofEd.com. That's the b o r e d of ed. dot com. We are on all the social medias out there. We got uh, Twitter and Instagram, the underscore board of ed. Um, and then, of course, we're on Facebook and LinkedIn at the board of ed. Um, and, you know, we, we, our whole team is together and, and, you know, reach out to us, ask us questions, uh, reach out to our board members who, who you hear from. We share about them. Uh, and again, the board of ed.com, a lot of content being developed uh, by our team to help you take uh, these episodes uh, and, and apply them and, and use them and reflect on them, uh, however you see fit. So that's how you get in touch with us. Um, and again, you can also listen to all the back episodes, all the episodes we've had and get an idea of what's to come. So speaking of what's to come, Kim Neal hmm. in Indianapolis, which is where I am right this second. Uh, that's where, that's where we live. Uh, I'm so excited because, you know, our town has known about believe the school that Kim has started. Um, and and I've heard a lot locally, mm. but Jonathan, I'm excited for us to talk to her so that she can share her brilliance.
1: Yeah, so I know Kim Neal from, well, we started together in the School Systems Leaders Fellowship, which at the time was uh, birthed out of the Teach for America um, work to connect and stay connected to alumni, but now is rebranded as the Combiar Catalyst Fellowship at Cambiar Education. And so I meet Kim there, and Kim is one of those people, you know, Cher uh, uh, did a remake of the song, you know, uh, it's in his kiss, right? Like, if you want to know if he loves you? So it's in his kiss. Well, I believe that if you want to know if a smile is real, it's in the eyes. I was gonna
0: say, where are you going with this, man? (laughs) Like, are you, no, okay.
1: (laughs) Kim is one of those people that when she smiles, You look in her eyes, there's a twinkle in her eyes, right? There is a joy. She's serious about hard work, but there is a joy. There is a a purpose. There is a a power when she's smiling and when she's engaged. This woman has been a part of a lot of the well-known, you know, school, uh, charter school um, organizations that you have probably come across in your different cities. Uh, She is a black woman who is carving out her own space, launching a network of her own, which is not something we talk about every day. Um, So we're going to get to talk to her, but I want to preface this with, she's a busy woman. She is the founder and executive director of Believe um, High School in Indy, which is the flagship of a network she's building. So we're going to be talking and we were fortunate enough to get her. She's running around doing things, getting ready for these. You're going to hear her huffing and puffing, but she believes in this stuff so deeply. She wanted to make sure she was part of this.
0: Yeah, and, and for those of you who don't know a lot about the Indianapolis landscape, educational landscape, this we, we are rife with different charters and alternative schools um, uh, where school choice is really important, particularly um, in the city. Uh, and so it is, it is not uncommon to hear about a new charter here or you know, uh, a new innovation school here and there. A lot of them are doing the same old thing just under you know, there's there's a different logo outside. Uh, there's a different uniform. But I think the the most important thing to start with uh, as we as we talk to Kim is, what is it that believe is doing to really make schools more human for kids?
2: A lot of the things that we were doing in schools were bred out of fear. Um, and and fear on a lot of levels, fear of the students that we serve, fear of litigation, fear of uh, parents and the community. Uh, There were lots of policies and procedures set in place. So we were joking when we first got on the call about drugs. I was talking about ibuprofen, um, Jonathan, because I have a student with a headache. And in all the schools that I've led, and I know this isn't popular, sexy, and uh, I don't know how this will play out. Uh, we never were lot allo- we were never allowed to give kids a vitamin or an ibuprofen, and they sit in school angry and mad because their basic needs haven't been met. We created a waiver in our school for parents to sign off and say, yes, my child can take an ibuprofen. Um, and we had our parents sign it. and every kid whose parents has signed, that they can have an ibuprofen, we send out a form stack, um, which this, I think, leans into the COVID world, where we can do a lot of forms electronically now. We can text a parent with a form stack and says, your kid's sick. Do you need to leave work to come to my school to give them my ibuprofen? Or do you give permission for your child to take 800 milligrams of ibuprofen? And that, to me, is being human. I wouldn't want my child as as an adult and as a a future parent to sit in a building in pain. You have access to what they need right in front of you, and I think because people are so fearful of what if something happens, what if, um, what if they, um, have a reaction or something. People have been fearful of saying, "Hey, we know the law. We know how to be safe. We know how to ask permission and fill out a waiver." Like. There are ways to address this that don't require us to have kids in our building. I think a less provocative one is snacks. Our kids come to school hungry oftentimes. And if breakfast is over, we've still got food available to them. Why would we not provide that for them throughout the day? As an adult and as a professional, when I come to work, if I get hungry, I can eat. So why can't our students grab a snack during their passing period, go to class, have an apple, have an orange, and continue with their day? Like to me, those are just meeting the basic needs of our children and not being regimented to say no eating, chewing, or drinking in class, which is the kind of regulations and rules that have been implemented in all the schools that I've led. So I think think some of the making schools more human for me has come from just being a human and like doing for our kids what I would want done for me. And some of it has come from pandemic uh, related, being able to use uh, virtual and electronics more so now than ever before.
1: Yeah, no, that resonates with me. I think sometimes we think whether it's making schools more human or, you know, making schools uh uh more supportive of you know whole children we think that it has to be these really huge uh expansive you know world altering changes when something as simple as am i allowed to provide your student with ibuprofen or can i you know or or can we have food available for kids when they're hungry like little simple things like that like to your point are what help you know can, can make a school feel more human. It makes it, you know, that's what we're able to do as adults. So I appreciate that. Um, it also makes me think about a principal that I, I worked with in the past who did a school shadow and she was, you know, taking the whole day, a whole schedule with a student and just seeing how the day worked for the, the child. And the biggest thing she took away and it was so simple was we don't give kids enough time in passing. And she talked about how impossible it was to get from, you know, the third floor and the science wing to the first floor and the ELA wing and use the restroom in three minutes. I wonder if, there mm-hmm. are other things, you know, if there are other things as, as you're starting your own school from scratch now that you may have rethought uh, since you didn't have to replicate someone's yeah. model.
2: Yeah. So simple things like I, I, I'm a high school leader. So what's big right now with high school students social media um and you know what as an adult it's big for me too so to expect my kids to go eight hours and not scroll or check their social media to me just seemed insane so when we launched even though we want kids we expect kids to be focused in class I'm fine with kids on their passing period scrolling through Instagram or checking their Facebook or sending a text message because that's what I do when I get a moment to breathe. I'm working eight hours or 10 hours and right now 12 hours a day and I do like to take a break throughout the day to just do something mindless and I think our kids should get that opportunity too. I work better when I listen to music. Another thing that's like hey if you're working independently and you want to jam out to something while you're working and, and being productive I'm fine with that but that has not been the world order of the schools that I the high performing schools that I've been a part of before and I think for me if we're tr- if we're developing our students to be um, professional responsible young adults then we have to teach them the professional norms that that we expect them to have when they become um, young adults or become adults. So I think that's the, that's something that I, I also think is super important. That al- also comes along with health and fitness. Um, the way we would traditionally do gym doesn't make sense to me. I, I, I As an adult, I don't have a gym class that I can go to and like uh, be healthy as an adult. So for me, our conversation with our kids is What are you going to do to get the daily exercise that you need in order for your body to be healthy? Is it a sport? Is it conditioning club? Are you going to walk? Are you a runner? What is it that you need to do to make sure that you're active and your mind is sharp? And we have those conversations. So our kids who are playing sports, they're getting their activity out. Our kids aren't. Okay, you may need to take this Zumba class because you're not as active as our basketball players. So like having those conversations about what leading a healthy lifestyle looks like has been something that's been much more um, front of mind for me than ever before. And that also includes mental health. We've talked about physical health. We've also talked about mental health. So we have a relaxation room in our school where there's a massage chair, there's a Zen garden, there's aromatherapy, there's just a, a mood lamp that you can just sit in there and close your eyes and meditate. There's a nice carpet if you need to sit on the carpet. We've got a beanbag if that's what you need. Like teaching our students the to figure out what they need in order to have the peace of mind or the mindful moment in order to continue with the day, I think it's super important. And to teach them how to do that proactively and not reactively, which most of the schools that I've worked in do. Uh, after they've gotten in trouble to put out a class it's like oh fill out this reflection sheet or go to the quiet corner no if you feel yourself getting to a place where you need a break take it and Mm -hmm. I think that's where where I am now that that I've never been before as a leader
1: yeah what resonates with me about that is like you know those are the things that you and I can do as professionals or as adults right take a break walk away pull up the Mm -hmm. social media um and so it, it, in one way, it's just like, it just seems um, natural that if we're preparing our young people to be successful adults, we would want them to be able to, um, you know, make those choices while we're still there to support them and, and help them make be- the, the best choices. Exactly. The other part of it though, is that, I you know, I, I want to assume that a lot of those policies that, you know, forbid the phone use or whatever are coming from a good place and that the desire is to help them stay focused. But- not only is that not how you and I operate as adults; it's not how it works in a lot of our more affluent schools, where the kids are, the population is true story. Uh, you know, primarily white. I remember going to observe a teacher back in the day. I was uh, coaching teachers, and they're doing some. Some I think they were writing essays or editing essays or doing slide decks. And I look and I, I see a student. He just got his phone out, and I'm thinking this joker must be tripping. Like he's just bold. Wait till the teacher sees this. So I kind of quietly go. To the other side of the room to see what he's on. And he was actually doing the project on his phone. So for him, he was more comfortable, more confident doing it on the phone than on, you know, say a laptop. And so he was just working and I, it really kind of shook me about my preconceptions of that the phone is naturally an, a distraction and remembering that a, fo- a phone can be a tool. So I think that's the other part of it too, is that the idea that the only way to prep black and brown kids for the future is to be super strict and regimented it, it, it's false when we see that their peers are given those um, that flexibility and they thrive so why don't we why don't we prepare our kids to thrive as well
2: and that's the premise that i mean you sum- listen podcast over um you summed up everything that we built our school off of so when we launched believe i didn't go to noble or Kip and say let me get these handbooks and let's talk about what what it our non-negotiables look like and are we going to use slant or star in regard to tracking the speaker? I reached out to Burbuff, which is one of the most expensive private schools here in Indianapolis. I talked to my colleague that works at University of Chicago Lab School who came to our launch retreat, um, who works at the school Obama's kids went to prior to uh, them moving to D.C. And my conversations with them were, what are you all doing for culture? What happens when a student doesn't turn in their homework? What happens when a student is late to class? What happens when a student um, has their cell phone out? And overwhelmingly, and once I started looking at their documents, there aren't many policies. They don't have a discipline code. They aren't doing some of the same things that that have been happening and are happening in our charter schools, high performing or not, across the country that serve black and brown kids. And because of that, It has been insane to me um, to say that we have to keep doing education for Black and Brown the same way that we've been doing it. When I built Believe, I knew we needed to use elite private schools as models as opposed to no excuse uh, schools because I knew how crucial it was to say that we've got to rethink the narrative about how we can educate Black and Brown kids and still get strong academic results. Because if the only examples that we have out there are the nobles and the Kips. no disrespect i've worked in both of those organizations learned a lot grew a lot and had a lot of impact on kids but if those are the only models the uncommon who's training leaders across the country through relay um and not only across the country Jonathan, i went to south africa and they're using the relay model seeing and mm-hmm. they do it in south africa and in ireland so if we're if we're thinking that the only way to address students who come um from the circumstances that our students come from I like to say underestimated youth and and regardless of what color or what continent they're on is to have a no excuse model that's overly narrated overly strict overly exclusionary discipline we're doing this wrong and we've got to rethink how we're going about this and that's something that's been uh the top of mind for me as as I built believe like that has been uh the thing for me when I go out and talk to other leaders is hey why why aren't you allowing your kids to take their Chromebook home the kids Hmm. in in the affluent district they're they're carrying them do you think those kids break them too they do They break their Chromebooks just like our kids at some point are gonna break a Chromebook and they account for that loss in their ordering and we've gotta account for that loss in ours. But if we never teach our kids how to responsibly handle technology, who's gonna teach them?
1: That seems so simple, right? Like rich kids or kids from rich families will break Chromebooks too, but it's so important, right? There's a ways in which we've mythologized kids from affluent communities or maybe in reverse we've mythologized kids from low income communities as if they're like different species of human yeah uh, the kids right there are kids from affluent families who misbehave there are kids from low income families that misbehave there are kids with great who show great uh promise in our traditional academic environment in the wealthy and, and in the low income and so it's really looking at them as humans and saying you know a perfect example when i was uh, leading in a charter high school, our district level or network level was always saying, well, we're building these schools to prepare kids to compete with the kids from the affluent schools. Mm-hmm. As if I didn't have exposure to those schools. When I went to those schools, they weren't doing the things we were doing. They were allowing kids to take, uh, well, most of those kids came with their own devices, but they were allowing them to have greater amounts of freedom so that they could try, they could make mistakes, and they could fail in an environment where the adults were there to pick them up, to care for them, dust them off, and get them back on track. And I don't understand why we don't do that with our kids.
0: Yeah. I and, and you know what strikes me, um, especially now that we're 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 you know more back into into in-person learning, before in-person learning, I was in schools all the time. And what struck me is that the schools that were that were more affluent, that were that that were the students or more often uh, white, like teachers had to fight to get the computer lab. Like they were taking their kids and engaging them with that kind of technology. But in some of the, the, the schools in lower income communities, in schools where, where students were predominantly students of color, you would see these really well-appointed computer labs going unused. There were a lot of times where teachers weren't weren't taking their kids to the computer lab to engage them. And so what, what Kim shared with me really resonated to like the, the, the whole one-to-one device thing. What, so what if we give the kids a computer if they haven't used it? And we had that happen at the pandemic, right? We had a whole group, we had all swaths of kids who were like, I want to use the computer, but you've never taught me how. Like you, I, I've never in my lessons been able to do that. So there's actually an opportunity gap there. And so, Jonathan, that, that really just hits home really deeply is that it, it, it's not just about the device. It's about what we believe kids can do. And there's got to be a reason why one school has the computer labs being used at full capacity every day. And right down the road, there's a school, same grade levels, where they're sitting empty it's got to be that, do we not trust our kids? Do we, like, are we not giving them the opportunities to do those things?
1: Well, I think as simple as it sounds, it goes back to the name of Kimberly Neil Branham School, Believe. What do we believe kids are capable of doing?
0: Absolutely. And and the other thing I think is really important that Kim, is her approach is, is it's not just about a culture difference. So a lot of the things she talked about builds a different culture. It's about showing that like culture and academics don't speak different language. They're they're not two sides of the same coin. They're on the same side. They have to work together. So I'm interested to hear what she is doing and what Believe is doing on the academic side of the house.
2: So one of the things that never happened in my old environments were kids got a study hall. But I know in every affluent school in America, Uh, including the number one school in the state of Missouri that I attended, we got a study hall. We got time during the day to do our work. My niece and nephew attend an elite Catholic private school in Southern Illinois. They get a free period. Mm -hmm. And nobody's monitoring them during their free period. Nobody's telling them what they need to work on. They're learning the skills, the study skills that they need in order to be successful in college. Because they're having to learn how to manage their time and get their work done and uh, extracurricular activities in high school. We don't give our kids that opportunity. We're not providing that space uh, for Black and Brown kids writ large across the country because we're over programming our kids. They're in an extended school day, they're taking classes from, in most cases, 7 30 a.m. to 4 p.m. And we think if they're not in school for, uh, seven plus hours a day, then we're not doing it right. Um, if they're not in practice until 5.30, six at night after being in school all day um, and we're giving them two hours of homework, then we're not setting them up for success. But most of the kids who attend the more affluent schools are in school six hours a day at max. And in that six hours, they get a study hall. Then they do some sort of activity in sports until 3.30 or 4.00. But 5.00 5 p.m., they're at home getting ready for dinner. And they may have some time to to do some work in the evening, but it's not much. Hmm. And I think we, on the academic side, think that our kids have to be um, worked to death in order to grow and learn and get where we need them to go. And I like to believe it. And this is where I'm a little bit more hesitant to speak on it, uh, Jonathan, because I don't have my data yet. We're, We're in our first year. But I'd like to believe our schedule, the way we set it up, where kids start at eight, they've got 30 minutes of village, they do have an hour in the middle of the day that's called acceleration time to work on either remediation or acceleration or whatever they feel they need to work on. It's not overly directed time. Um, It's self-directed time that our kids are still going to get strong academic results and the same amount of growth or more. Than any of my counterparts, affluent or not in the city. And that's what I believe. So I hope to be able to come back on the show in a year and, and talk data with you. What I can say is that, preliminarily, in a time where most people are trying to account for learning loss, our kids have already shown growth on their Lexile scores throughout the year. We're already showing uh, one of our cohorts got an average of 100 points growth during COVID. Uh, Where everybody, where we were virtual for a quarter of the year, where it's been a crazy year, our kids and our our proficiency uh, group of reading went up, not down. Um, Every group that needed to go up went up. So we we have some early indicators that our model is working and we did not overly program our students. The other piece on the academic side that I want to add, Jonathan, is I have freshmen taking college classes. So that's something that doesn't generally happen in private schools or public schools, but we've got some brilliant babies. We Mm. just don't tap into the underestimated youth that we serve, but our kids oftentimes have to not only learn in school, but deal with a different level of adversity and exposure at home. So that level of like brilliance, um, their affluent counterparts are not even able to touch because the critical thinking you have to have to be able to navigate the hood. And then code switch to walk into a structured school environment is a different level of critical thinking. And our kids, I think, have almost a leg up on some of their affluent peers just because they're exposed to things that their affluent peers are not exposed to. They don't necessarily live in the same type of bubble. They're in a different kind of bubble, but it's not the same type of bubble uh, that a lot of uh, affluent uh, children in in the U.S. are, are accustomed to. So that being said, I've got some babies that are coming in here killing their first college class by the second semester of their ninth grade year and people are like oh wow and i'm like yeah they're going to continue to kill it because that they've been designed and unfortunately due to the historic racism in our country it- it's in their dna to be a survivor and to take on any challenges put up in front of them and not only take it on but do it well
1: hmm. no that's dope what i what i love uh, about what you're saying and i'm i'm i am calling it this you might call it something different but i feel like there's a belief is differentiating between hard uh work and actually uh rigorous work i feel like sometimes in schools we think well if yes if 20 math problems is 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 good then 100 is even better uh but we don't account for what is it are we asking them to do progressively uh more uh, challenging types of problems or is it just like a hundred multiplication problems because that's not necessarily rigorous and what I'm hearing at Believe is giving young people time in the day to accelerate their own learning, giving young people access as freshmen to college courses. It's more rigorous. It may not, you know, look the same, the old sweaty brow kind of uh, metaphor or analogy and the, you know, typical no excuses environment, but it's preparing them for a whole, it's preparing them for the world we actually want them to um, get into, right? Like
2: Absolutely, absolutely.
1: I feel like sometimes it's, you You look at what the kids are working on, they're writing a lot, but they got a lot of templates. And it's like, when they get to college, ain't gonna be no templates.
2: Yeah. not gonna be no that.
1: formulaic writing. You, they have to be able to think for themselves. And it sounds like that's a lot of what is happening for everything from, how they tackle their their fitness, how they tackle the mental health, and these courses that you're offering—you're giving young people, uh, your young people, your babies, the opportunity from ninth grade, to to, to make some choices for themselves, to try some things. That's that's real rigor to me.
2: Yeah, I mean, and and not only on the college side, but we have some tenth grade, ninth and tenth graders that are getting ready to get their OSHA thirty certification so that they can do. Journeymen for construction because we have kids that don't want to go to college and they're saying, Hey, I really don't like the classroom setting. And I'm like, Cool. What do we need to do then that you do like that you're going to be invested in that's going to allow you to earn a livable wage? And let's explore that. So I'm also not trying to force a round peg in a square hole because we have some kids that are very articulate and clear about what they want to do in their future. And we need to listen to our kids. And I think that also leans back into how do we make schools more human? I've worked in college or die environments where we've told our kids, this is the only way to do it. And that's just not true. My nail tech makes a ton of money. My, my employees to get their lashes done, spend $50 every two weeks to go get their lashes done. And the people that do their lashes are doing very well financially. Some of them make more than I do and they set their own hours, which I love for them. And if we have kids that that's what they wanna do, I wanna support them in whatever their passions are and whatever they're excited about because at the end of the day, I want them to be happy and independent young adults. And in order for us to do that, we need to be clear about how to get yeah. there.
1: Yeah. You know, wow, that that this idea you know, that we are working with young people in pursuit of authentic futures mm-hmm. is so novel, you know, because we've spent so much time focused on every kid has to go to college, right? And we're thinking of it as like access. And if every kid has the choice of college and that's a good thing, that means we prepared them. But, you know, what I hear from from Kim there, her nickname is Kim Possible, by the way, kind of like <laughs> Anishay Teach Him Right from season yep. one, Kim Possible. Um, What I love about what she's saying is that, you know, we may have biases about, you know, what an eyelash technician is. But on the other side of that table is a young person who sets their hours, sets their prices. It's an entrepreneur. Right. So that's an authentic future. If that's what the young person wants to do that, we have to make room for because we're not, you know, we're not teaching for college. We're teaching young humans. We've got to think about the child. The young adult in this case, what is authentic, what is real, what is inspiring, what are they passionate about? And how do we create pathways to that? Right. And so we start to push kids away from paths that are authentic and real to them, that are inspiring, right? Get them out of the out of a building, out into the out into the earth, out into the ground, building things, creating things, doing things, right? Like I don't have to me, I have no problem with those things. If it is inspiring and real for that young person and it gets them to come to school every day, passionate and fired up. I'm all with it.
0: You know, it, it makes me think about this idea. You know, we we talk about teaching the individual child as an individual human being who has individual needs. One thing we don't talk about a lot is the idea of what success looks like. If we're like, who 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 determines what success looks like for each kid? It, shouldn't it be the kid? It should be it should be that young adult who leaves school with with the ideas and skills. Uh, like Kim said, to be happy and to be independent and to be productive for themselves. And so I think the next step here has to be to redefine what success looks like. If we're taking an individual approach to teaching kids, then the outcomes can also be individual. When you got college or die painted across your, 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 your school walls. And, 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 I'm not, I'm not trying to throw shade by the way, <laughs> don't want to get in trouble there, but like, that's a finite choice, but that isn't necessarily the choice that every kid needs or wants to make. Right. And, and if we think that anything less than college is, is unsuccessful, that's a fallacy.
1: That's not true. It's not true. And you know what doc did not throw shade. I will though. I will though, because there's no, to me, there's no way to say, well, you know what? We're a school of choice. The kids who come here need to know that this is what we're pushing. They're all gonna go to college, right? Because you don't just, we don't just serve the, the young person in front of us. We serve their families. And so there is a way that a message like college or die or whatever, whatever way you frame that, right? Like if we don't make it to college, we have not achieved or we're not somehow worthy. And I don't, no one would say that if you don't go to college, you're not worthy, but there is a way that implied those messages right. get through. Well, then how do I, as a young person pivot to my left and to my right and look at my parents or my siblings, my older cousins, my community members who didn't go to college, yep. should they die? Should they, should they, is there no value to their lives? So I think that like, if we want to say, you know, we want to reframe that message that this isn't the end. High school can't be the end. What's the path forward for you? Is that college? Is that community college? Is that military? Is that technical training? But what is that path for you that is going to wake you up, get you out of bed in the morning, slap them feet on the ground, and get about the business? I'm with that. Like the asset positive, open ended framing, right? Um, that's, that's what I'm with. And it's not just, it can't just be Kim in her school we've got to figure out how do we get that to all students how do we get that to scale right so we humanize not only school but to your point the pathways out of school so that every young person has something that they're looking forward to after grade 12
2: we're small right now we only have 50 uh mm-hmm. this year but our goal is only 100 mm-hmm. because we think in order to really realize this model You can't do it with a 1,000 kids. Mm, We need to intimately get to know our students Mm -hmm. and be able to navigate the community around us to meet their needs. So I'm kind of leaning towards the small school initiatives that happened in our country maybe Mm. 10, 15 years ago because I think we've got to get back to hearing and relating and understanding our kids' needs. So you can either do that in a small school or you can do that in a school with 5,000 where right. you got a million programs and endless resources. Mm-hmm. That in between space where a lot of schools are, I don't really know with a thousand kids if you can intimately provide them the supports that they need to get where they need to go. Because mm-hmm. I don't think that financial or staffing model really works. So I'm yeah. on a systems level, which we talked about as well. I'm trying to figure out what size is the right size to run a system of mm-hmm. schools that caters to our students and allows us to see them as humans.
1: Yeah, no, I think it's beautiful. Well, again, it goes back to, there's, I I attended a high school. My first high school was a 5,000 student uh, complex. And um, they offered a lot more than my second high school, which was about 800 kids. And so I feel like you can get a good education uh, in a variety of environments. That being said, when you go back to some of those elite schools, how many of those elite schools you visited had 5,000 kids? Um, I just feel like most of the elite elite institutions uh, that I've been exposed to, even K-12, they don't have 5,000. And again, that doesn't mean it's right or wrong, but like folks have tried to throw away the small schools movement that you referenced. And I think sometimes because it didn't work as a whole, they said it was because, oh, small schools don't work and they didn't want to do the hard work of, uh, analyzing, well, what actually went wrong because small schools work for wealthy white kids. Uh, we don't need everything to look the way it does for white kids, but uh, you know, y'all didn't throw, they didn't throw out their model. So there's something to it. There's got to be promise, And I think there has to be intentionality. It sounds like I believe if there are 50 kids in the freshman class, you, you really live into this idea that there could be 50 pathways and not, this is the way we're all going. I love that. I love, I appreciate it. Um, I think what's really interesting about your story, Kim, is that not only were you starting a school, you were launching a school in the middle of a pandemic. So when schools with, you know, whether they're charter and they have 10, 20 years experience or they're, you know, more traditional schools and they've been doing this for 50, 60, 100 years, they had maybe institutional knowledge and background experiences to 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 um, either um, leverage or, uh, And also maybe things to undo, whereas for y'all, you were doing this from scratch. What advantages do you think Believe had not having, say, a status quo to maintain? And what were the actual challenges for doing this your first time out in in a pandemic?
2: I think we had a lot of flexibility um, and room to play with opening in a pandemic because we didn't feel like we had as much to lose. I would say this year, we were open three out of the four quarters this year. So because we were in person, I felt strongly that our kids were getting a leg up over students who were going to school in a more established environment because most of those schools were virtual. So Mm -hmm. we were able to experiment. So I hadn't really done a lot of um, blended learning before where kids were learning on a platform instead of with a teacher but because we launched in a pandemic everybody was doing blended learning and everybody was having conversations around um, asynchronous versus synchronous and what could this look like so I had the unique opportunity to say hey I don't know how I feel about this I don't know what the results are going to be but it's what everybody's doing right now so we gave one of our courses. Uh, through a blended learning platform and we are excited to hear won't happen to the fall what our academic results are because we had to take an end of course assessment for that class and I'm excited to see what our end of course assessment scores are in compared in comparison to kids who have taken the live course up until this point point. and we did it with something with biology we didn't do it with a. Uh, um, literacy or numeracy, but we did it with one of the sciences. Um, but I'm, I'm excited because I think that our scores are going to be in line with kids who took a live instructional biology course. We don't know yet, but if they are, that gives me a lot of confidence to say, there are some courses that we can offer virtually, um, that we haven't, that I historically would not have taken that risk on, mm-hmm. uh, that because we opened in the pandemic, I feel confident in doing.
1: Mm. Well, I mean, the thing about it is, if if the data proves you, you right, um, it goes back to the co- conversation we were having earlier, where a school that's remained small could potentially offer things you wouldn't normally be able to offer if you can y- leverage it in, in a quality, in a, in a you know, a quality version of a course virtually or uh, blended. To that point, are there any aspects of the design of Believe that are different because of the experience of opening in the pandemic that might not have happened if we were opening in traditional times?
2: For sure. So we have a lot of students that are still virtual. So even though we've been open three out of the four quarters, we had students who left the state. We have students who've had custody issues and one parent refused to bring them to school. And what we were able to see this year during the pandemic is because we offered virtual options throughout the year, we've got kids that we didn't lose. Our attendance has stayed high and our uh, uh, retention has stayed high. We actually, from count day one to count day two, um, had 100% retention uh, because we had students who, no matter what their life circumstances were, uh, we were able to retain them and figure out how to make it work and keep them invested in what we were doing here. Um, and I know that wouldn't have happened if we hadn't opened during the pandemic. We wouldn't have learned or, or, or developed the muscle of how to engage a student who whose mom died in New Jersey and she ended up going to stay with an aunt there and still was able to log on and be invested in the work that we're doing here or a student who DCFS was gonna get involved and had to move to Chicago and she still, caught a bus back to go on our freshman camping trip because she wanted to be part of uh, the experience with her class. And she said, even though I'm not there physically every day, this is still home for me. This is still where I wanna be. And we learned how to invest students through um, virtually uh, in that way or kids who are not always gonna be here with us. We had students who went to Mexico. We had a young man that went to the DR and then went to New York to deal with his grandmother because she had surgery. He didn't miss a beat. He stayed invested with his village. He stayed on top of his classwork. He's back now. That experience uh, we would never have had uh, if we had opened in a space pre-pandemic. If a student said they were leaving the state, we'd have had them withdraw and enroll in school wherever they were going. Um, and that, that that didn't necessarily have to be the case. And often times with the transient population like the ones in, in a lot of our higher, uh, uh, higher concentrated, high, highly concentrated urban environments. We've got to figure out how to keep them invested and involved, and be a constant in their lives, and not have them going from place to place, which we've done historically.
1: Now that that resonates with me very deeply. This idea of schools being more flexible to meet the needs of kids as their lives, you know, as, as their lives are shaken up in another area why not maintain at least some level of you know, familiarity and certainty, you know, mm-hmm. consistency? Yes, exactly, because we see it on the we would see it on the reservation too, kids who are, you know, they live on the reservation, they may move into, you know, uh, off reservations, you know, community, and then they end up back either later that year or the next mm-hmm. year, but they had to enroll and re-enroll and all this craziness. Mm-hmm. And so this has a lot of promise um, for like, maybe trying to, trying to address some of that. Um, mm-hmm. We have a real- no. We
2: don't. No, we don't know what that looks like post pandemic, Jonathan. Right, and that's what what schools are trying to figure out now is what does education look like in post in post pandemic. And I know recently there's been some controversy in the news where some uh, cities are saying there won't be a virtual option. We're going back full steam and in person. And then some cities are saying, "Hey, we've got some kids who just did better at home." And how do we address that? So I think as we go into our summer planning, we're thinking long and hard about how do we make sure we keep our attendance as high as it's been? How do we keep engagement as strong as it is in a world where we do want the majority of our kids to come back in person? How do we make sure that we hold on to our babies that have lives that are chaotic, that may not always allow them to be here every day?
0: This is something that, that the value of hindsight has given me. And that is, I, I am just now understanding all the decisions that I made in absence of really important information, hmm. right? I'm gonna, just, just to be vulnerable for a minute, like as a teacher, and, and I do know of a couple of former students who listened to, to the show. I can think back to times where I made a decision or I made a judgment on what a, a kid was feeling, or, or why they were doing something in the absence of knowing what was really going on, right? So instead of going, instead of going, man, I'm wondering why the student isn't here, I should reach out, or, or or giving them the benefit of the doubt to go, you missed class, something had to have happened, let me support you. My brain as a teacher went, you don't care about my class, because you're missing, right? Like, i wish i had the rewind button right like i wish i wish i had listened to the board of ed and then could go back uh, and do do hundreds of things over again um but i love that kim is setting this as part of the culture of the school right it's Mm -hmm. it's about going you're a human being stuff's gonna happen and instead of going you don't value school because you're not here it's like well let's let's get underneath it
1: right i think i think that the way you frame that, it, it, it uh, makes me wanna like pivot, right? And, and say to our audience, right? You're listening and maybe you have feelings like that. I know I do, right? Like, ooh, I wish I could have had that conversation back or those moments back or those class periods back.
0: Mm.
1: Well, we can't, but we have a lot of control about what we do today, what we do tomorrow, right? So taking that nugget first and saying, okay, this is how I used to think, You know, Kim Possible has got me thinking something else entirely tomorrow. Today, this is a fresh start. What do you want to do differently on that note? It's also since we have her, we have Kimberly, Neil, Brandon. I want to ask her straight up, like, what advice? What are some tactical things that educators in buildings this year can do? um, To make things better for everyone in the building. Let's see what she has to say.
2: So I think some of the things are really easy. So when we decided to do what I call our care cart, um, that's a low lift. We, you talked about it before, just on the culture side, me and you did a leadership program uh, together. And every time we convened, there was a table with basic needs like tissue, uh, ibuprofen, um, pads, tampons, um, tums, uh, mint. Just basic things that we that someone felt like a group of professionals may need over the course of two or three days together. Uh, any in any school in America, that's possible. To say, hey, what are the basic things that we know our kids are going to need in order to feel good and come in here and have the right mindset to get invested in their learning? And and that's as simple as putting a cart in the bathroom with pads and tampons for our young ladies. That's as simple as um, having a cart in the hallway with uh, snacks or pencils, um, extra paper, um, tissue, hand sanitizer, all the things, lotion. <laughs> all right, you'd be shocked at how many kids just love the fact that they can uh, get a squirt of lotion and that their hands aren't dry and itchy uh, when they go back to class. But it's those little things that we are able to provide in any of our environments. Um, And I think all schools, especially with the access to the CARES dollars, can provide um, moving forward. I think those are the things that make the difference um, in the eyes of a a child. And we know as adults, those are the things that we remember when we go into new environments as well.
1: I wonder if there are things you've learned about uh, how to make schools more human for teachers as well, for the st- whether the teachers, social workers, you know, office staff, what are the yep. things you've learned to make school feel safe, welcoming, and, um, you know, sustainable for the professionals who are taking care of our kids?
2: So one of the things that I've said to our teachers is the same level of care that we want to provide our students, we want to provide to them. Uh, one thing that I think is always shocking is like basic needs for teachers. We've, we have a K-Cup machine. You, if you didn't make it to Starbucks, you can get it here. Uh, we have coffee. We have a kitchen with a microwave and an air fryer and a skillet, uh, a hot plate, a toaster, a full refrigerator, um, snacks that are available because uh, teaching is hard and sometimes you forget your lunch. Uh, we think it's our, our teachers can eat the school lunch too as well. And the school will comp the cost. Um, because it is important to us that our teachers feel like everything they need is also available for them here. Uh, we've got a teacher's lounge with a couch. You might need to lay down. One of the things that I'm thinking about investing in and writing a graph for for next year is a Peloton. A lot of my teachers struggle with the 12 hours that we work. And one of my colleagues at my last retreat said we bought a Peloton for our school and our teachers love it because some of them can't afford that in their real lives, but they wanna be healthy and they wanna um, make sure that they're physically uh, fit as well. So we need to provide as much as we can for our staff so that they feel like this is a home away from home, just like we want that same environment and dynamic for our students.
1: Shoot, When you when you uh, get the Peloton, that should be your next staff recruitment ad. Just <laughs> put the, <laughs> the whole Peloton mafia be getting into teaching. Um, uh, no, that's I, I think it just there's a lot of care in the things you just mentioned. And none of it was about policy change, none of it was about academics, none of it was about discipline, attendance, anything. It just it sounds like y'all really love your staff and you love your kids.
2: And the byproduct of that, and I think for any leader that's thinking about the things that I'm saying, is that not only have we had a very strong year in terms of retention for students, we got 100% retention for staff. And so though we're a small staff, the fact that the staff that we do have feels like this is a family, feels like this is home, feels like they can get what they need here I think plays a large role into that. We're not overcompensating. Our salaries aren't any higher than the school down the street. That's not the case at all. And I'd argue that our people actually work harder uh, than the people down the street because we're here long hours and uh, we're small. So people wear different hats. Our Dena culture drives the bus, teaches math, is Dena culture. Like people are definitely flexing at different levels but uh, it's also a place where we see them as humans and we act accordingly. Hmm.
1: Same question. I just wonder if uh, there are any things that you're learning or doing differently for families, for engagement?
2: Yeah, Um, so we have what's called Purpose Path Meeting uh, two to four times a year, depending on the academic performance or or social performance of the student, uh, where we meet with families just to have a conversation. And in that conversation, we do share academic updates. We do share assessment data. We share how they're doing on our uh, level up system. Um, and then we ask the family, what do you need? Is there anything we can support you on? Um, and is that, is that housing? Can we sh- share resources? Are, are you in a, uh, earlier in the pandemic, we were providing food. Uh, even now, we have a community room where parents can come in and get food and basic household needs. Uh, so we we absolutely on the family side of giving out um, Kroger gift cards for the grocery store and uh, delivered groceries um, in times of need as well. Helped with transportation, um, things like that. Like if a parent says, hey, in those meetings, this is what I need. We're going to bend over backwards to try to help them figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that has fared well with our families as well. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, like you said, a lot of these items are low-hanging fruit, right? Mm-hmm. They don't even always attach directly to academics or to culture setting. It's just all about um, treating people as humans, right? Yeah. Up from the front. How do we That's, just make sure that they know we care?
0: Yeah, that that has been what's sitting with me from from hearing Kim this entire uh, this entire episode is as groundbreaking and as innovative as it sounds at the core, it's just like doing good for people, right? Like it's, it's doing for your kids and the families, what you would hope would happen if you were in similar situations. Right. Right. And, and, and our system wasn't built that way. Our system was built around like this, 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 level of access that we just expect everybody to, to, to come. And we apparently assume that all kids have the same experience when they leave the four walls of the school building. We've always known that's not true. Mm. and we often, We've always known the experiences of kids are drastically different, but school really hasn't adapted to that. And so all the things that Kim has shared with us, to me, like, who doesn't want to be a student at Believe or a school like it? where they're seen as a human being and the things that they need are are, are provided or kids are supported in, in providing for themselves, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's just a, there's a power in the simplicity of it.
1: Right. And, 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 and what I, at the same time, I I bet that there are some folks who have listened to this and go, well, how would I ever do all that? You know, I'm a principal or I'm a teacher and I already have A, B, C, D, E, F, G, all yep. the way to do how do I do it? And so one of the things I wanna call out is that believe is a community, right? Kim is a powerhouse, but she's not doing all this alone. And so that, the, the other part of this coming from us at the Board of Ed is to encourage you to think creatively about who you can partner with to do some of this stuff. There was a time in, in like in the black community prior to um, desegregation of schools where um, churches and other community centers filled in some of the blanks around schools. So there was like a door-to-door approach. The kid left the house. The neighbors knew who that kid was, got yeah. to school, got out of school. There were things all throughout the community, right? And and I know even even into the 80s, when I was a kid, if I was acting up on the way home from school, there were a bunch of moms and grandmas who knew who my mom was. I w- My butt would have been tanned, you know, by either, either <laughs> on the way or when I got home. And now that I'm advocating for, you know, for spankings, but, you know, this idea that, you, as the as the single classroom teacher or the single principal, doesn't have to figure it all out. Let's start to get creative about how we rebuild and reconnect with our communities so that we all have a vested interest in how our kids are thriving. Yeah.
0: It it goes to that the to the I'm paraphrasing the quote here. You know, never underestimate the power of a small group of people doing small actions to change the world, because in mm-hmm. fact it's the only thing that ever has changed, right? So, so for that kid, a teacher who makes a choice um, to do that one small thing in their classroom, that makes a difference in the world for that kid. Um, and so I, I'm with you is, is make the choices and make the changes that are in your sphere of influence to make. You may not be in a position to change the system or to to gather funding to do an entire food pantry for a community or whatever, But if there is something that you can do that is in your sphere of influence and it will make kids feel like they are seen as an individual human being, then do that, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be a grand gesture. It can be that small thing that makes a a big difference. So uh, Kim, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for for your brilliance and for what you're doing, uh, speaking as a, a transplanted Hoosier. Uh, Thank you for what you're doing for the Cindy of Indianapolis. Um, And uh, to, to listeners, I hope you were as inspired by her as I am. Uh, Visit us uh, as we continue to share more of her brilliance and more brilliance from our other board members. Uh, You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at the underscore board of Ed. That's the underscore B-O-R-E-D of Ed. Uh, We're on Facebook and on LinkedIn the Board of Ed. And of course, you can always go to the theboardofed.com. That's the B-O-R-E-D of ed.com. I now hand it to my dear friend for his final thoughts on this episode. Jonathan, what you got?
1: Well, you know, we had Kim Possible, you know, Kimberly Neal Branham in, in the house today. And she figured out at some point, working with larger charter networks, that there was another way to do it, potentially a better way. And she was uniquely positioned to do that so I wanna encourage you, you know, our listeners, principals, especially today, school, prospective school founders, what is your sphere? What is it that's in your heart that you wanna do differently? Figure out, is there a way to create the space to do it within your current system? And if not, do you have the boldness? Do you have the courage? Are you properly positioned to do something different? And if so, let's do it. Let's go, right? Like who are we waiting for? Who's gonna do it if not you, right? we love you. We stand with you. So, so commit today to take one step to that impossible future you have imagined, but you've been sitting on, and we're going to be with you for the ride. Make sure you add us in social media. Let us know what you're working on so we can encourage you, so we can shout you out and make sure that you are in the spot for the next episode. We'll see you next time. Stay bored.